0: Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to Crucial Conversations. My name is Peter Slate, and I am your host this evening. And joining me tonight, we have a couple, well, one different pastor, one pastor joining us from last week. We have Pastor Peter Ill of Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. And then our new pastor is Pastor Andrew Dirks, joining us from Ahrensville, Illinois, uh, Two areas that are not even remotely near each other necessarily. Illinois is a really long state. But we are excited tonight to talk to you guys about the first commandment. A couple things as we get going, we now have a podcast. You can subscribe to this via podcast. So some of you may actually be listening to us in that format. Just open up your favorite podcast app and search for Crucial Productions and you will find us there. For now, Crucial Conversations is what will be there. But as we have more podcast type things in the future, there will be even more content going out. So uh, enjoy that. We have an email address. If you guys have questions, especially if you're watching this after the show has gone live, after the broadcast is over, you can send questions to questions at crucialproductions.org. That's questions at crucialproductions.org. Send us your questions, and maybe we'll add a segment at the beginning of the, the next episode answering questions from last episode, which will be really fun because it may not even be the same pastors answering those questions so you get an even more diverse View on this stuff, so be kind of exciting and fun that way. The other thing, uh, join us in the Grok Moot. We this show actually started from a request to have a reading plan in our Facebook group, and so if you want to join us on the daily readings, follow along with us as we work through the Large Catechism. That is the Grok Moot on Facebook. Links to the Grok Moot are down below in the description. So check the video, or if you're listening to the podcast, there will be a link in the description of the podcast as well. On today's episode, we are talking about the First Commandment. Like I said last week, we have done the reading throughout the week already, so we will read portions of the Large Catechism tonight as we go through this, but we will not actually read it in its entirety, the whole portion. So our hope is that you come to this having already read it, or if you're listening after the fact, hit pause, Go read the section on the first commandment in your large catechism and then come back. If you are in the uh, second edition of the Concordia's Reader Edition, Concordia Reader's Edition, (laughs) there we go. Yep, we got the picture there, Pastor Ill. Uh, For those of you who look on camera there, we are going to be looking at pages 359 through 363. So, four pages we'll be going through tonight. That's our introductory stuff. So. Now, Pastor Dirks, you're new. We have no idea who you are. We now know where you're from, and you're a pastor up at Trinity in Aronsville. And you got this big old massive thing on your head. So tell us a little bit about yourself and especially what that thing on your head is.
1: <laughs> uh, I am the pastor in the middle of nowhere in my metropolitan area of 400 people. Got a wife and a daughter who is currently eating some dinner right now. So she'll hopefully stay over there for a while. I. Uh, <laughs> I am a hunter, fisher, home brewer, and video game person. Hence, the gigantic headset on my head.
0: Nice, cool. And now, Pastor Ill, after we're done here, you have to go do something uh, kind of unique, right?
2: Yeah, I get to go do uh, my kind of community volunteer work. I the village of milsa where i serve is kind enough to let me be the police and fire department chaplain and uh, april's coming to a close it's time for my monthly ride-along so i'm gonna go jump in a police car for a few hours
0: <laughs> so we'll uh, keep in you in our prayers
1: well
0: we'll keep you in our prayers and hope that nothing too awful and terrible happens and if you know you gotta drink be... a lot of coffee that's yeah the plan. Okay. stay awake stay awake all right so we are talking about the first commandment tonight, and we may have some listeners, some viewers coming from an evangelical Protestant background, non-Lutheran background, and you might not notice it this week, but next week when we start talking about the second and third commandments, um, that second commandment, if you come from that more Protestant evangelical background, is different. And... In the numbering that we Lutherans use, that Martin Luther used, the second commandment is not, you shall have no graven images. That's the version of it that I remember. Um, Instead, he jumps, well, he appears to skip that that particular commandment entirely and jumps straight to, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God or take the Lord your God's name in vain. So, pastors, as we get started tonight, can you explain, the difference in, in the numbering as it starts off here. Uh, how does Luther come at that numbering? How does he address what we're going to be talking about today? You know, kind of start that discussion about idols and graven images.
2: Sure. So as this picks up, one of the things that we talked a little bit about last week is that there were other catechisms and um, in Caridians as they were called that came out before Luther wrote his catechism. And so as they did all of that, the Roman Catholic system of numbering the commandments is the same as the Lutheran system of numbering the commandments. And so part of this is that Martin Luther just inherited the way that commandments were numbered uh, from before him. And so he just jumps right in and doesn't change anything. As we get to talk about uh, thinking like a confessor. And how it is that we have a pattern for speaking the truth of our faith in Jesus Christ and asking the right questions and getting to the right answers and having this right pattern of thinking. Uh, One of the things that Martin Luther exemplifies is that confessors aren't really innovative. Sometimes we get really excited about the hip, cool, new thing. But (laughs) Luther, Luther, Luther can't care less about being hip and cool. Instead, Luther is all about, hey, how do we speak the biblical truth in the same way as it has been spoken from the church of old? Sometimes the church wanders and falls off the wagon, and when she does that, we simply go back to scripture, but we're not trying to do something new, we're not trying to replace anything, we're not trying to renumber anything. And so instead of this, we end up with uh, talking about, hey, this is the way the church has always confessed the faith. And for Luther and for the other confessors, it's really important. We're not doing anything new. We're doing the same thing. And we're just going back again and again and again to Scripture.
1: Yeah, and one of the kind of, you know, we have kind of the two main traditions that you end up seeing in the numbering of the catechism and with the Ten Commandments. And the, one of them starts with uh origin And that's where we end up seeing him. He was the one who did the second commandment. You shall not make any craven images or anything like that. Whereas I believe it's St. Augustine who is the one who sets up the commandments in the way that Luther ended up doing. And one of the things that is an interesting thought with it is the fact that when we speak about the Old Testament, yeah, you did not have any images of God because God was not an idol. He was invisible. We were not supposed to make any images. But now in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And we have the image of God as he took on our flesh to dwell among us for a while. And so we can recognize that as a, you know, seeing Christ taking on our flesh to go to the cross and bring us salvation there as well.
0: Yeah. Thanks for the reminder, Pastor Il, about our uh, tagline for the show, which I completely forgotten, which is teaching (laughs) you to think. Like a confessor, and as in, in the interest of that, I believe one of you, as we're talking and preparing for our for our show here, mentioned it was paragraph three as we get into the first commandment, where Luther gives kind of a further explanation of how he does what he does. So I'll go ahead and read that, and then toss it to you guys for a little more discussion. Hey, here. hey Peter.
2: Yeah, yeah. Before before go ahead. I do that. Yes. Um, I want to talk just for a second about. Um, a controversy that from time to time has come up in the church. The fancy name is the iconoclastic controversy. Um, and we hear the word icon there. Uh, and an icon if, for, for our tech savvy folks is the little button that you click the little mini picture. <laughs> um, but icon is originally a Greek word and it means the picture or the image and Colossians 1 talks about Jesus as the visible image or the visible icon of the Father. But at various times in church history, people have said, wait a minute, you guys are running around and you have pictures in the church. You have statues in the church, and it looks an awful lot like you are worshiping these statues. And so there's this tension and this push-pull kind of a thing that goes through church history. And It's important for us to say, images and statues and paintings and other church art, uh, these are not worshiping the art. We don't worship crucifixes. We don't worship statues. We don't worship uh, the big crosses and the crucifixes on the walls in our churches. We worship Jesus. All of those images, those icons, point us to the true image of the invisible father, the true icon, Jesus himself. And so the question we always ask about church art isn't, is this a graven image? But rather, how does this image point us to Christ and point us to the grace of our, of our loving God? One of
0: the things that helped me, actually, as I was transitioning to being a Lutheran on this very issue was, struggling with seeing in many Lutheran churches, the, the crucifix with Christ crucified. So you have a cross with Christ on, I believe that's called with, with a corpus, a um, full crucifix. And just having that in the church, it you know, can be a little bit off-putting. It can be a little bit of a stumbling block to some individuals. And what helped me see it the way you were talking about was the reminder that Paul says, we preach Christ and him crucified and recognizing that this crucifix is simply a visible reminder of what it is that is being preached in this church, hopefully being preached in this church as Christ and Him crucified, combined with my discomfort over seeing that could also be a way for me to recognize my own sinfulness in that I'm, I'm uncomfortable seeing Christ dead on the cross. Well, good. Because then I can recognize I should also be uncomfortable with my sin and what he had to do in order to address my my sin and take care of it. And so that's, that kind of helped me. Do you guys have any other things that you've, as pastors, that you've helped, that you've done with people to help work them through maybe some of these objections that they've had?
1: I know when I first added a crucifix into the sanctuary at my congregation I had someone who brought up the story of her mother I believe who was in a Roman Catholic hospital and she had there's a crucifix in the room and the lady said I don't want that in my room I believe in a risen Jesus. Mm. And it was a taking a time to speak through you know of course we all do but this place where we see Jesus hanging there wounded and bleeding is a place where salvation is won. I believe Jesus rose from the dead as well, but this is the place where my sin is forgiven because this man took all that penalty of God's wrath in my place. Pastor hmm. pastoral? anything?
2: Yeah, a little bit. To be crucified and to be risen are both states of being. They're the way that Jesus is. Jesus after he has risen from the dead in John chapter 20 comes and he talks to his disciples. And in Luke 24, he does the same thing. And what does he do? He shows them his hands, he shows them his side, and he says, Hey, look, I still have the wounds. I'm risen from the dead, but I'm also the crucified one. And, and there's kind of like a false dichotomy uh, when we say that I worship the uh that I worship a risen Jesus. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know what else? You also, because you worship the same Jesus, worship a crucified Jesus. And so we look at Jesus on the cross and in the empty tomb and ascended and reigning with the Father in heaven, all as being the same Jesus. Uh, And Jesus isn't limited to one state of being. That's okay. He's Jesus. He can do it. (laughs)
1: and when we read the book of Revelation how does it refer to Christ the lamb who looks as if he had been slain and so just kind of keeping that imagery of what he has done for us
0: yeah scripture itself continues to talk about Christ in this way and raise him up in front of us in that way yeah very helpful so the first commandment is simply this you shall have no other gods now as we look at Luther's treatment of this commandment what are some scriptures that we should have in mind Uh, that we should be thinking of as we read through, or maybe that we should go to first and read those scripture passages and then read what Luther has to say to see how he makes that fit.
2: I think that a good starting place is Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four. Uh, And this is called in a lot of places, the the great Shema, Shema being the Hebrew word for for hear or the, the saying, because it starts out with the the word, here, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, oh, it hid from me. Here it comes um, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And it goes on from there. But It calls for a complete and total faithfulness to God. And so with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, love the love Yahweh, the Lord your God. Period. Uh, There is no room for split, uh, emphases or for wanting to uh, be distracted by other things. Instead, we simply look at the truth of Jesus and of The Lord our God, as we see Him crucified and risen, and as we do all of that, we recognize, oh yeah, Jesus is the Lord our God, and with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind, we love Him. And sometimes we hear this and we think, yeah, I do that, Um, and we recognize. (laughs) And and sometimes we do. I know you. We're both laughing. You know where this is going. there are sometimes when we laugh because it, that makes us uncomfortable. But there are times when we as baptized new people in Christ, with the spirit of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we absolutely do love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. That's great. But there are also times when we recognize we are still sinners and we hear love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Uh-oh. Uh, because... We don't always look like we do that, but uh, the new creation that we are, the new man in Christ, as St. Paul describes it, is exactly that. And so I realize I'm moving from Deuteronomy into Romans chapter six without reading it. But Romans six talks about how all who are baptized have been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection and that Christ dwells with us and us with Christ. And so as we do all of that going back and forth, we recognize, yeah, on the one hand, I'm a sinner who doesn't do this. And on the other hand, I'm a saint who does this by the power of Christ who lives in me.
1: Hmm. purely as a gift of God's grace as he ends up doing this by the working of the Holy spirit who comes to us by word and sacrament. And it, it is, you know, if you want, we, as we look at it, we also see the, uh, Israel is the one who receives this. And as we go through Israel's history, what do we end up seeing? We see a whole history of unfaithfulness in that reaction to it. Rather than loving the Lord, their God with all their heart, soul and mind, they have sought after other gods, sought after other things, And what is the result that comes from it? They receive punishment that comes at the hands of the one true God, of Yahweh, who is seeking by that punishment not to destroy, but to call to repentance, to call them out of their idolatry, to call them out of their sin, back to the one relationship with him. Because they can't serve two masters. They have to serve, they cannot serve these idols and God. They cannot synchronize the religions or anything else. They need to set aside these idols And by God's grace, you have times that they do repent.
0: My wife and I in the evenings right now are reading through Amos, uh, trying to do a chapter in the Bible every night. And so we're currently in Amos. And like every chapter is basically God telling them you have failed at this one thing. You, here's all the other gods. Here's all the other things you've put before me. Here's all the things that you are trusting instead of me. And frankly, it's rather depressing. <laughs> I think we are up to chapter eight last night, and it's like, this is just depressing of hearing God talking to his people and showing, pointing out specifically how they have broken the first commandment and then so many others afterwards. Uh, last week we talked a little bit about trust but if you read the small catechism luther introduces this commandment with you should fear love and trust in god so that you have no other gods you know that's basically that's my i know it's not exactly right i messed something up in there but it's fear love and trust it's the only command that has the word trust in it so when you guys were sharing just now there was a lot of how, how do we find that trust? What does that trust look like? Um, how does that manifest itself in terms of idolatry? So let's think the relationship between trust and idolatry, I guess, is where I'm you know hoping we can talk a little bit
2: here. I'd love to back up just a little bit to yeah, something that we talked about last week, uh, and that was faith always has an object. Faith is always in something, and we talk a lot about believing And today it's cool for us to talk a little bit about, yeah, I believe. Well, that's cool, but what do you believe in? It's really not possible for us to believe without believing in something and having something as the object and the end point of our faith. And so uh, this is something that Luther kind of brings out. And I know we're not reading through the whole thing. Can I read the first couple of paragraphs of the the large catechism on the first commandment, though?
0: Yes. And then read. There's one sentence in paragraph 20 that I want to read that actually makes your point, too. But you start first.
2: Okay. so Luther starts out. You shall have no other gods. What does this mean? You shall have me alone as your God. What is the meaning of this? And how is it to be understood? What does it mean to have a God or what is a God? Answer. A God means that from which we are to expect all good and in which we are to take refuge in all distress. So, by the way, notice the use of the word all there, just like how Deuteronomy 6.4 talks about loving the Lord your God with all of your soul, and sorry, with all of your mind, all of your heart, and all of your soul. Um, so to have a God is nothing other than trusting and believing him with the heart. I have often said that the confidence and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. If your faith and trust is right, then your God is also true. On the other hand, if your trust is false and wrong, then you do not have the true God. For these two belong together, faith and God. For uh, Hebrews eleven six. Now, I say that whatever you set your heart on and put your trust in is truly your God. And so now we think a little bit about uh, the way we've been talking about uh, graven images. A lot of times people want to say, Oh, this commandment is about having no idols and having no little statues that I bow down to and worship here in my dining room next to the toaster or anywhere else. But instead <laughs> podcast listeners, I apologize. I'm sitting in front of my toaster because this is the best spot in my house for this. Um, it's right there. Uh, anyway, we, uh, When we trust in something to take care of us, we make it our God and we make it an idol. We don't cause God to be God. Him being God takes care of that. But when we have our trust and our faith in the right place, then we recognize he is God. But we oftentimes make gods for ourselves by trusting in them. And that's not limited to idols or statues or pictures. That can be myself. My happiness, my money, my contentment, my family, my occupation, and the list goes on and on and on. Uh, but that's really what Luther is getting at is an idol can be anything. Don't just think about a statue. It's anything that that you give your trust to.
0: Yeah, we're going to – this this episode in some senses is going to be difficult because we're going to actually point out some of those idols. Luther talks – about one in particular that he emphasizes quite strongly in this, but we, we've kind of talked about a few others, but the, this can be difficult to hear because we don't like having our idols pointed out to us. <laughs> that thing which in which we have placed our trust instead of God, when that gets pointed out to us, we usually, um, as the sinners that we are, respond you know with a little bit of Uh, anger may be pushing back a little bit. Um, When we respond as Christians, we respond with, ooh, that's right. You know, I need to work on that. But the the line that I wanted to just read real quick on line 20, uh, contrasting putting trust in God is ultimately they put their trust in that which is nothing. When we're speaking about the object of your trust mattering, it, it matters in what the object is in which you place your trust. And Luther straight up says, ultimately, If your trust isn't in
1: God and
0: fully in God, your trust is in nothing. Pastor Dirks, anything you want to add to the conversation here at this point?
1: Well, it's always interesting, and this is probably leading into what we're going to be going into next, but just recognizing when Scripture talks about things, and money was the example that got brought up already. When it speaks about some of these things, it's actually spoken about in some level as a liability Because while it is a gift from God, while mammon is a gift that God gives to be used for an appropriate purpose, there is that temptation to start to think, hey, I'm great. I'm something because we have whatever wealth, fame, power, whatever it may be, thinking that that thing will take care of us, even though when we drop dead, it's not going to do us any good. (laughs) Yeah.
2: And as you share all that, I can't help but think about the parable that Jesus tells about the rich fool, as, as we often think of him, who had this wonderful harvest of, of grain so that his barns couldn't hold it all. And he said to himself, hmm, what am I going to do with all of this? And so he says, I know. I'll knock down my barns. I'll build newer, bigger barns. And then I don't have to do anything. I have a perfect plan for the way my life ought to go. And God says to him, you fool. This very night, your soul will be required of you. And so he had trusted in his own plans and in his comfort and in his contentment. And then on he but God requires his soul of him. And he thought he could trust in himself. But God shows that's not the case.
0: You also have Jesus talk, the rich young ruler who came to Jesus asking, you know, what must I do to be saved And Jesus says, well, here's here's the commandments, lays out what we would call the second table of the law, which we'll talk about, you know, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. And he says, hey, I've done all these things. And Jesus says, okay, you have one thing left. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And the man went away sad because he was very rich. Now, is that an example of Jesus pointing out an individual whose faith and trust was in their riches. And that's why he walked away sad. Is that something we should draw out of that? Or is there something else going on there?
2: I think that we absolutely can draw that out of that text uh, because uh, as Mark tells that text to us, he says, for he had great possessions. And Mark throws in that little, uh, uh, um, that little insight and says it's the great possessions were what was getting in the way of him selling everything he had he seems to have his contentment in the possessions and the idea of following jesus without his possessions was for that man at that time a bridge too far
1: yeah yeah
2: pastor dirks what are your thoughts
1: one more rich man to bring up since we brought up a couple of them is in uh, Luke 16 as Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who are lovers of money, the rich man and Lazarus. And as you hear this, you know, the parable is you hear this rich man who's clothed in every all this fine stuff. He gets to feast sumptuously every day. And on his doorstep is this guy named Lazarus who he ignores the entire time. The dogs are nicer to the guy than the rich man is. Well, Lazarus dies and he goes to heaven and the rich man dies and is cast out into hell. And it's not, you know, first off, it's not because the guy is rich that he goes to hell. It's because of where he put his hope. You know, he doesn't use the gifts that he's been given for a proper purpose. He puts it into indulging his belly. He, his God is his stomach when it comes down to it. And so much to the point that you notice that as you continue through the parable, the only person with no name is the rich man. Because of his idolatry, his name has been stricken from the book of life, and he is not given a name throughout the entirety of the parable. And so it's just a reminder as to the dangers of idolatry, because it sets our eyes on something other than Christ as our place of hope and trust.
0: And this this topic of money is extremely difficult to discuss, uh, especially for us. We're doing this on the Internet with computers, I have a smartphone here. I have an iPad. I am in a house. <laughs> you know, I just all around me, everything screams wealth and toys. I, I have so much money that there's toys that you know can just decorate. The not even play with. <laughs> no, I don't. They sit there. Nobody touches them.
1: <laughs> they are. They are pretty. Uh, on yeah. on that I'm at. I mean, I have enough stuff that I am able to. At some point, I've led to myself to be in this problem because I have an abundance of things, even though I have student loan debt, even though I have other these other things that may be there. You know, when we hear rich, we always try to think of the one percent and we point at the people we are jealous of more than anything else, rather than recognizing we live better than kings have in the past. I mean, we hear of these kings who had all these lavish things set in front of them and go, that's all they had. I mean, I have hot water that comes out of a tube when I turn my faucet. I have free. I have food that can last for a whole bunch of time. I have indoor of plumbing. Uh, indoor plumbing is a wonderful <laughs> gift. <laughs> and so it's recognizing how well we live here in the Western world that when, when, we, when we hear that, when Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to go into heaven, he's talking about us because we have more than people have throughout history. It's it's
0: worth it's worth mentioning. Um, okay, I forgot my thought. I'll come back that one. Part of where this all, <laughs> great live. This is wonderful. This will Let be unedited. Okay, yeah, you Run jump in bit. while I try and think.
2: Okay. Um But a lot of times we think about money as the problem, and we start to think about money as being dirty or filthy or unholy. And I think it's helpful, too, for us to hear what Jesus says about money in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, "...do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven." or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Uh, And so what I don't want to say is money is automatically bad, or having stuff is automatically bad, and that we have to uh, go sell everything that we have, and that we need to take that, those words that Jesus gave to the rich young ruler as being prescriptive for us, for how we have to live our lives. It's okay to have a house. It's okay to have hot water and running water and a car and computers and toys that you don't play with. That's not sinful. What is sinful is putting your trust and your focus and your importance on collecting those things, having those things, maintaining, preserving and acquiring more of those things. Uh, And so it's not that money is evil, but it is where your trust is. And so often where you spend your money and how you construct your budget, that is a revelation or can be a revelation of where your priorities are. And if your priorities are ultimately in yourself and your stuff, then you're in trouble. Then you've got a problem.
1: Yeah. Yeah the uh, oft misquoted text of scripture saying money is the root of evil. No, no, no. The love of money is the root of all evil. And that's the thing that ends up leading to problems. Like you, like Peter said, it's not a thing of, you know, having these gifts is not the problem because you can do very good things with the gifts God gives, but rather recognizing, loving them, putting our trust in them. That's where the problem comes in.
0: Yeah. Now, well, I remembered what I was going to say, and it's that there are very few instances in Scripture when Jesus talks about money positively. It's it's a lot of it is a warning um, against, ultimately, placing your trust in it. Because he knows this is what we're going to do. We will find anything else other than him in which to place our trust. And for myself, I used to lead a lot of short-term mission teams, and I want to I want to bring up an example of where people. I, I, th- I was in th- thinking about this commandment this week. I think that's where I made this connection here. When you go on a short-term mission trip, if you're coming from an American, Canadian, you know, generally Western culture, going to a third-world country, towards the end of the trip, most people, most Christians, I should say, I'm leading Christian trips, have this kind of crisis point or this difficult time. As they're about to leave that country, or when they first get back home, where they there's just this depression of I have so much stuff, these people have nothing, how can they be so happy they don't have all the things I have, they they don't have the clothes, they don't have the homes, they don't have shoes, they don't have basic health care. And there's it really creates a, a kind of crisis in individuals of how do I process that I have so many blessings and these people don't. And I think what's actually going on there is a recognition of where that individual has placed their trust. The fact that this is a crisis for them, that they can't see how anybody else, and I, I should say they, it's, uh, myself included. I went through this very same thing that they can't see anybody else as being satisfied and content unless they're in the same situation that I am with the same amount of wealth, the same kind of care, that is an indication of where have I placed my trust that seeing this situation creates almost a faith crisis for many people. It actually becomes a full blown crisis of faith where they're questioning everything because of this. And, so I, I want to use this example for us to transition to Philippians 4, 13, because this, I think, gives us a better context in which to understand what Paul is saying. So pastors, take us to Philippians 4, 13, and let's continue discussing contentment and idols and what that looks like. So who wants to go first in talking about that?
2: Is it okay if I read from Philippians 4? Yes, please. Can I- can I start? Can I get a running start, though? Context is always good. Yeah. I, <laughs> so, and by the way, this is one of my very favorite devotions. When I go visit a Christian in the hospital, I love to read from Philippians four. And as I start to read, they always look at me like I'm stupid, uh, which is a reaction I get used to. But uh, hey, with a face like this, man, but. <laughs> Uh, But this is a wonderful passage for all Christians to hear, no matter what. Philippians 4, starting at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In the peace of God I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Pause for a second. Here, Paul is talking about the financial gift that the Philippian Christians have provided for him in his missionary service. And so they sent him a contribution, and he's acknowledging their contribution. Picking back up in Philippians 4, verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned... In whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And a lot of times when we read read this passage, Philippians 4.13, the I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, it becomes kind of like the Christian, I can do anything kind of a line. Because but, Jesus. Yeah, because <laughs> Jesus. But in, in that context, it calls us to think about what is true, what is noble, what is praiseworthy, what is trustworthy, what is good. What is, what, what is all of those things? Ultimately, Jesus is. Where do we set our eyes? Where do we set our attention? Where do we set our minds? On Jesus. Whether we are being brought low, whether we are being lifted up and exalted and raised high, no matter what physical circumstances we are in, no matter what emotional circumstances we are in, no matter what problems we might have, we are brought high. Uh, And we look to Christ who is our Savior, and in him we do all things because it is Christ who strengthens us.
1: Yeah, and when he speaks about being able to be brought low, I mean— Keep in mind, where is Paul writing this epistle from? It's called one of the prison epistles for a reason. He's saying, rejoice in the Lord always as he is sitting in a prison cell. Yeah, I mean, this is to recognize his hope is not in his situation. It's not in this moment where he's going to triumph over the struggles that he has. It's in the fact that he has a savior who has bled and died for him and has promised him that life is coming when he comes again in glory. He can be content in any kind of suffering that takes place, and I, I agree with you, Pastor Ill, Ill, just because of the fact I use this one too in some of the conversations, and I actually did it after a couple. Use this one for a couple after a couple teenagers died when I had first gotten here in a car wreck, and it's recognizing and even as we walk through these sufferings, we go through these trials, Christ is with us. And we have his promises that endure forever. And there's nothing in this world that can take it away, whether we be rich, we be poor, well off or in prison. Christ's promises last forever. And we can trust those things above anything else in this world.
0: Amen. As we, as we were thinking about how to talk about this, we also were looking at Romans 8.32. And I'll, I'll read that and then let you guys uh, take it from there. But we have Romans 8. Once again, context is good, so I'll at least go back a verse or two here. What then shall we say to these things? Uh, these things being the, the progression of those who are called and justified and predestined and all this leading to those who are glorified. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. As as he goes on, he says no. But the, the key here is, will he not also give us graciously give us all things? Now, Paul, who wrote this letter to the Philippians in prison, being content with nothing and also being content with much, then says this God is going to graciously give us all things. If it's all about Jesus, how do we work these? Well, as we were discussing it, how did you guys put these texts together? <laughs> Cause we're still talking about Jesus. So that's good. Um, That may have been a confusing way of phrasing that, but this is why we have show prep so you guys know what we're actually doing. All right.
1: Who's first? I mean, it comes down to, again, you know, um, what saves? What thing actually lasts forever? What thing actually endures? You know, all these other things that we may set our hope on, whether it be stuff of this life or a false god or something like that, none of them actually do any good when it actually matters because the day is coming that whether rich or poor slave or free or anything else, we're going to drop dead. And on that day, where is our hope going to lie? Where is our hope going to be set? And for us, it is the fact that we can trust in the fact that God did not spare his own son, but rather gave him up for us so that we would be forgiven, that we would have a place where our hope can rest knowing that The trials we face in this life are here for a moment because that's this whole Romans 8 is a wonderful text for talking about, you know, why these things happen in this world. Why are the struggles here in this life? You know, they're here because it reminds us that the place where we can put our hope is Christ. The futility of the things of this world that all of them break, all of them shatter, even our own bodies turn to dust. Mm -hmm. All goes back to make sure that we recognize the place where we put our trust is not in princes, not in Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or anything else of this world. It's to see Christ and he who has done all these things for us.
2: But I think that our culture uh, pushes back on that because we can, we can give really good lip service to, um, I shouldn't put my trust in governments or policies or money. Uh, and we, give, we, we can say all of that with a straight face. And everybody, Christian and non-Christian alike, wants to uh, say, yeah, I'm not beholden to, to the man. Um, in fact, I can stick it to the man if I want to. But uh, especially for those who aren't Christians, we they end up focusing not on somebody outside of them, but on somebody inside of them. And they focus on themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a really good place to say we have kind of this self-idolatry where we want to be happy. And so we want to read Philippians 4.13 and Romans 8 in context of, yeah, but how does that make me feel better? And sometimes we want to read Romans 8 and say, oh yeah, I like that 37, 38, 39 part about how nothing can separate me from God's love. And I can describe exactly what I want God's love for me to be. But that whole part about we are like sheep being led to the slaughter, the suffering stuff, the nakedness and the famine and the sword and da, 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 I can skip that um, because I want to be happy and I want to be content. Uh, I got to read a great book that's all about Luther, the large catechism, the first commandment and self idolatry. Uh, <laughs> that book is called uh, the unholy Trinity, Martin Luther against the idol of me, myself and I. It's by an Australian pastor and seminary professor named Michael Lockwood. Uh, Peter, can we drop can we drop a link into the show notes? Is that able to be sure. done? Sure, yeah, I okay. can do that. Cool, uh, because it is uh, just a really helpful book that has changed the way that I get to care for the souls that I uh, take care of, um, and and get to go from there.
0: I'm writing notes, so one of you okay. keep talking. <laughs>
2: cool. I'm dropping you a link right now. Back. All right. Done. You don't need notes.
0: Yeah. Cool. So one of the one of the, di- one of the it, it's easier. Let me put it this way: it's easier to point outside myself at when I place my trust in money, uh, when I place my trust in my job. Um, even as difficult as it can be to see those, it is. I think this is partly where we were starting to go with with Lockwood's book here. It's harder. To see how I actually just make myself God. Um, and we usually do this uh, in a way where we are, we are the authority who determines what is or is not God's will. What is or is not sinful. Maybe it's a, another way that we can place that where we no longer ask, what is God's will for me in this? But we look at what is my will in this and how can I justify it Uh, before god or before man what is talk about that is that something you guys see is that an is that an accurate portrayal of what we tend to do um am i overstating anything here what talk a little talk back fight push back if you need to
1: (laughs) no i'll agree with you completely one of the one of the moments you see this happen most clearly is a lot of times where we see the connection between the third commandment here with the first, because you know we haven't really gotten to, to talk about it yet. But the first commandment in every single other commandment. That's why Luther, when he writes each of the meanings, we should fear and love God, because every single commandment ties into the first commandment. What was the idol that was more important than what God had said? But when we, when we look at the third commandment, which is about hearing the word of God and believing it, I mean, one of the things that naturally happens to us sinners is when we hear the word of God condemning that thing that we like, yeah. our natural reaction is not to go, Lord, have mercy on me. Our natural reaction is that jerk just doesn't get it. That pastor who said this stuff is just the—he's just too old. He's just too young. He's just some. He's a legalist. He's a
0: pietist. I mean, we've got all sorts of Lutheran labels we throw at people like that too.
1: Exactly. (laughs) It's it's really kind of a moment where our we expose our own desires being pitted against Scripture when we ourselves get defensive when the Word of God calls us out for our sin instead of saying Lord have mercy. Yeah. And a kind of another form of this that I you know we talked about a little bit during show prep was talking about how you have people who will say, well, the Bible contains God's word, but not all of it is God's word because it's written by man. Well, who's now the arbiter of what is true and what is not? And what, should, what should be there? Yeah, different and stuff. It all comes back to what I decide what is right. And so it ends up being this moment where Je- when Jesus starts to look a lot like me, <laughs> I think I need to really Really take a look at myself and see where I'm falling short because I'm making Christ secondary, my servant, instead of recognizing him as God.
0: I'm also going to ask a lot of questions when Jesus starts looking a lot like you, Pastor Dirks. <laughs> I, I would feel very bad if Jesus started looking like me. I Now, as, as pastors, one, one of the things that, that you guys have to grapple with, I would assume, on a regular basis is we— you preach the law, um, whether you're preaching it from a pulpit, whether you're teaching it in Bible study, and in, in many ways, you are in the business of pointing out people's idols. But you, but you don't leave them there. Talk about what you do as a pastor as you're working with people, whether it's from the pulpit, whether it's one-on-one in pastoral care, whether it's in Bible study, as, as you're working with people and they've identified you've identified an idol, and they may be reacting. Very uh, negatively, <laughs> possibly, possibly angry. How, as pastors, do you care for those individuals when you've you've poked the bear? There it is, Pastor Ill. You can go ahead and start.
2: There, there comes a point where we keep poking the bear, uh, and we keep we keep kind of pressing the sore spot until the person is able to say, "Wait." I am, according to God's word, out of line. Uh, and sometimes that has to start with a conversation of, does does God's word or does this part of God's word apply to me? And to continue to work through that idea, yeah, I've actually started to put my trust, at least some of my trust, somewhere that's not in uh, the Lord my God with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my mind. And I've started to act like I have mattered most and like God didn't matter at all. And and so it can be kind of hard because sometimes people will will want to visit with a pastor and they'll they're really good about saying, well, I wasn't always completely honest or I've been struggling with being jealous or being lustful or being angry or, you know, all of those things that are directed at other people. Those are easier to recognize. But to say, I treasure my own happiness more than I treasure anything else. That's a really hard thing to, to come up with and to say out loud. And so I just keep pushing on it, and then I say, did Jesus live in order to be happy? Uh, well, no. Uh, Jesus is the one who prays in the Garden of Gethsemane that uh, this cup might pass from him, this cup of death. But he embraces God's will, and he goes to a place that is certainly not happy, the cross, and he does it. Where he is your icon, your visible image of love and mercy and grace. And so you make that transition from law to gospel. But before you can make the transition, you have to get all the way to the severest parts of the law before you can get to that full sweetness of the gospel. Because if you do either of those just kind of halfway, then it doesn't, uh, the greatness of God's love for sinners doesn't come through.
1: Yeah. When, when working with people as a shepherd, as one of God's called men to do this, it, it does end up being a situation where you have to kind of keep your finger on the situation to know what to speak. Because there are times, you know, like Pastoral said, you have the, you have to speak the law to its fullest so that they can receive the gospel to its fullest. And it 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 really is telling when you would speak the law to someone and they say, well, we're all sinners, which is essentially saying, well, everybody does it anyway, so it's not really a big deal. In that case, you still have to apply the law and speak firmly as to what God has said, whereas someone crushed by that recognition, which takes a lot of effort to work towards it because we we are spoon fed. You got to be happy. You got to do good stuff. You got to enjoy your life now. It takes a while to get there, but then when they see that in themselves and recognize that guilt, to be able to turn and receive forgiveness as they look to the one who died for them.
2: And it doesn't always get to the gospel, unfortunately. Sometimes people will say, no, 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 I can't take it anymore, and they'll uh, they'll stop the conversation in one way or another because they don't want uh, – The human self doesn't want to admit their own sin, and so they they hang up and they stop, Um, and they're not willing to see it. Just like that rich young man comes to Jesus, he asks what he must do to be saved, and when Jesus calls him to sell all his possessions and give them to the poor and follow him, he says, oh, no, that's too much. And we're no different than the rich young man. Um, And this isn't just the people I care for. This is me too. Uh, Today, I got to go talk to my pastor and I got to say, I've lived like God didn't matter and like I mattered most. Pastor, hear my confession and pronounce forgiveness in order to fulfill and complete God's will. And he did. And it was great. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad that he did Uh, because... There are so many times when I try to lie not so much to others and not only to God, but also to me and say, I'm not really that bad. And so this is a conversation that for me as a pastor isn't just for everybody else. But this is a, a, a question that I need to bring to myself and every Christian ultimately needs to bring to themselves. Do, do I love the Lord my God even more than I love me? Uh, do I love the Lord my God with all of my heart and soul and mind? If not, then it's time to repent. It's time to turn from my sin.
0: And, and yeah. I think for all of us, we could say that we, we are all in that place. There's a reason Luther started off the 95 C- Theses saying, God wills that the life of a Christian be one of repentance. We're, we're always in that place. Um, there are, there are, uh, Let's talk a little bit And Pastor Dirks, I know you have something to add that might actually fit in with what we're talking about here. Um, Let's talk a little bit about specific idols that might be specific to Americans today. A a large part of our audience is here in the United States where we currently are located. Uh, Maybe that'll change in the future in terms of where our audience is. But right now it's in the United States. And I know for myself, as I'm looking at our culture around us, uh, Christian culture in particular, uh, the First and Second Amendment are big issues in the news. The first amendment, uh, sorry, the first one being the freedom of religion. Second one being the right to bear arms. And you could say that the argument surrounding these and the, the ferocity and the tenacity with which people hang to this could indicate that they are placing their trust in something other than God to protect them and to care for them. Uh, is, is that an accurate way of, of saying that? Um, have I picked two issues that might be a little too hot <laughs> to, to bring up right now?
2: The fact that they're hot shows that they're good issues to bring up. Uh, you talked before about when, when you get a reaction, when you start to poke the bear, uh, when people get uncomfortable, it's because you're starting to get closer and closer to their idols and their false gods. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right. That, that idea of the freedom of speech and freedom of religion, that idea of the right to keep and bear arms, uh, those are things that can become idolatrous on both sides of the political divide. Take your pick. Um, there are all kinds of challenges that come up here. You've identified uh, one place where those idols can come from, but it's not the only one.
0: We got Pastor Dirks gets to be a father while he's on the show here. This is great. We got station going on. <laughs> um, so, so what, I, what? Let's let's talk about a little bit about some of the phrases. Well, is this a helpful way of thinking about? Are, are there phrases that people will use when talking about things that may be idols that can can help us, you as pastors especially, but. I, I know us as Christians, if we're we're learning to think like a confessor, how do we confess the faith? How do we confess it well? How do we confess it clearly? How do we confess Christ? Um, Part of this is as we are talking to our friends and our neighbors within our vocation. Pastor Dirk says, you are teaching your children as I teach my children and and all this stuff. Um, (laughs) um, what, What can we do? to help people work through idols that they may have in their life. Uh, we're not all pastors where people are coming to us for private confession and absolution. We're not pastors where we are preaching from the pulpit. Uh, I'm, I'm a lay person who may encounter this in my daily, daily life with my friends and family. Uh, what, what can I do? How can I help? I didn't hear the whole question, but
1: one of the things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean this answer will be awesome. It'll be Woo! perfect. Uh, I mean, when speaking about how do we work with it for our children, for our family, our friends, I mean, one of the first things to kind of recognize is, you know, as cliche as it sounds, modeling some of it to your family. I mean, being willing to show your children what it means to teach your children to pray, teach your children to read the scriptures, to learn more about Jesus, bring them to church to recognize this is the place where God dwells. And when you have something else that's going on Sunday morning, sorry, other thing, we're going to worship instead of going to whatever sporting event or whatever else it may be. Um, stepping a little bit further, helping the kids to see how, you know, when we have those times when something becomes more important to us than Jesus to show them how do we repent what do we, how do we do go through this and then reminding them of the savior who loves them um go ahead pastor
2: <laughs> oh okay um it, it's it's one of those things that uh as a pastor I get to model this to my congregation um I I don't I don't have kids, so I, I don't get to model it to them. But I think one of those things is being able to, in appropriate ways, being able to share with my congregation that this is a struggle that I face too, and this uh, here are the places that you go when you are guilty of loving yourself more than you love God. You, you go to your pastor, and you confess your sins, and you receive absolution. You go to... Th- the Lord's Supper, where he gives you his body and his blood, uh, calling you both to confess who he is and to receive that forgiveness of sins and to have that continual washing and restoration that works uh, from him uh, through your lips and all the way through you.
0: As we are, we're we're getting to the end of our time here together. I want to go back to the large catechism, and read just a small portion as we're wrapping up here. Uh, Line 30, paragraph 30, uh, there is a passage from Exodus 20, verses 5 through 6. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Luther, down in line 32, says, Learn, therefore, from these words, How angry God is with those who trust in anything but him. And again, learn how good and gracious he is to those who trust and believe in him alone with their whole heart. As we talked about in Deuteronomy 6. We we have spent this hour discussing the depth of of our idolatry. And then we've spent, I I think, just as much time talking about Christ and what he has done to to solve that problem, to, to heal us, to restore us, to uh, raise us from the dead, all the different ways that Scripture talks about this. So, as we close our time together here, final thoughts from you, pastors. What hope can you give to individuals who are, are listening, who are reading Scripture, who are reading this first commandment and realizing how utterly they fail at it? And maybe not only how utterly they fail, but Realizing, I don't even want to keep this commandment. My sin, my idolatry is so deep that if I am honest with myself, I don't want to. I like serving myself. As we close, what words of of advice, of gospel encouragement would you
1: give to such an individual? I told you the narrative I was bringing up because it's one of my favorite Old Testament readings ever. (laughs) First Samuel chapter five, after, you know, have Eli and his sons. Eli's sons are the worst priests that they really get. They are all about getting stuff for themselves. Well, they go to battle with the Ark of the Covenant. They get killed. The Ark gets captured. Eli falls backwards and breaks his neck because he's fat. You have all this stuff that happens. And the Philistines bring the Ark of the Covenant over to the temple of Dagon. And once they, they go home, they go to sleep, they come back the next morning. And the idol of Dagon is bowing down before the Ark of the Covenant. Well, they kind of react weird. So they put it back up and they go about their own business. The next day they come in again. The idol of Dagon has fallen over. Its head broke off. Its arms broke off. The Philistines start getting hemorrhoids and also other starts of plagues start happening among them. And it is a realization going through all of this is that when we are in sight of the true promises of God, we realize just how temporary, how in the end, worthless All of these other idols we can have are when the day comes, when Christ comes again, how much money we have, how much fame, how much entertainment, how much time that we've gotten to do. And even potentially our own families and other idols that show up, that doesn't save on the day when Christ comes again in glory. The thing that saves are his promises and all those other things that have been exposed for the counterfeits, the fakes, the temporary things that they are will be put to shame by the true and eternal promises that are in Christ, who endured the cross so that we would have salvation, who rose to show the resurrection that we get to look forward to. The stuff of this life is here for a moment, but the promises of Christ endure forever. And he has said, you are forgiven by his blood.
0: Amen. 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 Pastor Hill, any final thoughts for us today?
2: Uh, when we have those doubts about... Uh, I'm not sure I want to give up this this sin and I'm not sure I want to give up my my self-importance. Welcome to the way that Paul talks in Romans 7 where the very things he doesn't want to do are exactly what he does. And what he doesn't want to do, wait, I got it messed up again. Um, (laughs) Anyway, the Christian life is that constant push-pull. The old sinful flesh doesn't want to stop sinning. But the new creation that Christ has made us Does and Christ fulfills his word, and Christ leaves us with that comfort and assurance. Thanks be to God. Amen. This has
0: been Crucial Conversations. Uh, I'm your host, Peter Slayton, and joining us today has been Pastor Peter Ill of Trinity Lutheran in Millstadt, Illinois, and then uh, Pastor Andrew Dirks of also Trinity Lutheran in Ahrensville, Illinois. Thank you both for joining us uh, for the wonderful conversation, encouraging us, uh, spending time learning to think like a confessor. Uh, join us next week. We will be talking about the Second and Third Commandments. Pastor Dirks will be back with us, and we'll be introducing Pastor Steve Andrews as our two guest pastors next week. If you are listening, um, subscribe to our podcast. If you want to join the discussion throughout the week and you're on Facebook, join the Grok Moot on Facebook. Links are in the description below. And we're also going to be adding the link to that Lockwood book that Pastor Ill mentioned. Thank you once again, everyone, for joining us tonight, and we will see you next week.